Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Um, We're currently in a series entitled Original Jesus. Um, our, Our big picture vision for the year is maturing in Christ for the sake of the world. And what we wanted to do right at the beginning was, how can we look at Jesus not just as a model for what a mature, healthy human being looks like, uh, but to also engage with the spirit of Jesus in a way that we're transformed. And that's something that I've uh, you know, just really been challenged with recently, that a lot of times we can lower our sights as Christians and only treat Jesus as uh, a role model. We look at Jesus kind of like we would, like Abraham Lincoln. We read stories about him and go, man, what a, what a guy. What a, Jesus, he really, he really knew what he was doing. Let's just do what Jesus did, and that's what it means to be Christians. But for us, the challenge is a little bit more. It's not just being inspired by the person of Jesus. It's also engaging with the spirit of Jesus. Because there's, there's, there's so many things um, that happen to our formation that can only come through um, the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And that's what we call grace. And so we come here not just to be inspired, um, but the word inspiration literally means to put the spirit in. So we come to receive the grace of God so that we are transformed. And that happens by engaging with the story of God, with the story of Jesus, um, but in a way that it's more than just about being inspired. Amen? So um, this is where we're going to be going today. To be mature is to wisely discern when we need to go beyond the rules in order to do good. How many of you, you'd say your natural default is that you're a rule follower. You love rules. You want expectations placed on you. You want deadlines. You love Slack. You love Trello. You love Basecamp. You love any kind of digital software that gives you order to your life, right? <laughs> How many of you are, you, you're a rule breaker? It's just as soon as, as soon as you're told you can't have cookies... It's the only thing spurring your entire existence. You're not quite so, you know, willing to to admit that. Um, We all, you know, we all kind of fall on that spectrum somewhere. Um, But today, what I hope to do is through this story that we're going to be engaging with um, in Jesus, is to see that it's not about following rules. It's not about breaking rules. It's about learning how to be faithful, to be formed, uh, to look more like Jesus. So when the opportunity comes for us to love people, we're ready for it. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to read this story. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, this space. I thank you for these people, Lord. Um, We've had so many very odd uh, little quirks happening, even uh, trying to get in here and get all the things turned on, the lights and the electricity and whatever. And um, we submit all of that to you in Jesus' name. We say, Satan, get out. You don't have a place in this. We're going to do this if there's no lights and we just have to sit in a circle and powwow like that's because that's what church really is. Um, But God, uh, something in each of us has drawn us into this place. Whether we are very, very aware of our need for you um, or maybe we don't even know why we got up this morning to come here, but there's something, Lord, that you've drawn us in. Your spirit has wooed us to this place. So I pray that, Lord, even now our hearts would be so open to you, um, unafraid, unashamed, uh, just willing 
uh, for you to reveal whatever you want to reveal to us in a way that it changes us, that our ears would be open to hear your voice, maybe in ways that we're surprised that we can hear from you, um, that our eyes would be open to see you move in us and through us and around us. We give you this time, Lord. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the story today is in Luke chapter 6. Steve took us through um, a story last week where Jesus has been baptized. He entered into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the Satan to kind of come out of that. And I really love that last week that Steve kind of heretically added a fourth temptation in there. But it's kind of this temptation that undergirds all the others is who do you think that you are? And it's really a, a temptation of identity. And so now we see Jesus beginning his proper ministry. He's going out. He's preaching the good news. He's healing people. He, there's miracles are following him. And he's causing up quite a stir. And so when we step into this story, um, what we find is that Jesus has collected around him some young men as followers. These guys are late teens, early 20s probably. Um, they probably didn't make the cut the first time when it became, uh, you know, when they had the chance to become religious elite and they had settled back into the family business. But Jesus saw something in them and said, come and follow me, watch what I do, and I'm going to teach you uh, how to live out this new kingdom reality that God is doing. Um, and as we very quickly see that, that Jesus is bumping up against the status quo in his day and his time, um, that Israel was a very uh, well-established religious institution. There were rules, there was order, there were expectations of this is how things are supposed to work. And a lot of times through the story of Jesus, we see that he's not necessarily conforming to those expectations. And so this is one of those first stories. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. So one Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what was lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. No pressure. So you guys watch out. If you don't, you want to hide your shriveled hand from me while you're in, pre- you're in public or we're going to follow this one through. <laughs> then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. I love that challenge that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, uh, they're kind of the, the religious elite of the day. These are the guys, they're the teachers. Their job is to interpret God's law, which is the Torah, which we know from the Old Testament, and then to teach that to the common everyday Jew of this is what it looks like to live faithfully. So these are the Pharisees. Um, this is their job. And I love that that challenge that Jesus gives them. He says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? 
to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it. Because if we look here, we're getting a little vignette into their mentality of what God's law is for. And they're not even thinking in terms of doing good or doing evil. They're saying, you're not following the rules. You're not behaving yourself. And so it raises this interesting question. How do we learn what good and evil is? How do we grow up discerning what is good and what is evil? I think we're in a very interesting time within our society right now because we often find ourselves stuck on this spectrum. On one end, we have, have a moral rigidity um, that in, for historically, like in our country and many others, you find that if, it's, if everybody follows the rules, if we're all on the same page, that's how we maintain an understanding of truth and unity. And to deviate from the rules in any way, shape, or form is to find yourself on the outside of society. And so, you know, 50 to 100 years ago in our society, especially, we'd be much more in that kind of uh, what we would call modernism. There's, there's one truth, and here's the rules, and everything's been mapped out for you, and you just follow along with us. You know, you, you go to college, and you get the job in the factory for the, get the 30 years and the golden handshake, and you have 2.3 children, and you live in a cul-de-sac with a white picket fence and a garage that you can drive straight in. You know, all of that thing. Like, this is what it looks like, and if you deviate from this, you're in the wrong. But there's been a wild swing philosophically of how we understand truth and how we understand good and evil into kind of moral relativity in our own era. And it's motivated by this desire to kind of open up some of that rigidity. A lot of us were burned by being heaped upon us rule upon rule upon rule, expectation upon expectation. And what we find is that that champions of not unity but uniformity or conformity. We all have to look the same. We all have to act the same. And so the pendulum wildly swung in the sake of tolerance or in the sake of celebrating diversity, but it goes so far into moral relativity that we begin to say things like, well, I'm just going to live out of my truth and you live out of your truth. And the best that we can hope for is that we just tolerate each other, which is a very sad state of affairs. If that's all we're expected to do is to tolerate one another. I actually, literally while I was working on this, I had a dream. I don't think this is prophetic, um, but I was talking to somebody, and I guess there was some sort of, we were trying to sort out what had happened. There was some sort of very bad thing that happened between a couple people, and a friend of mine said, well, he's just speaking out of his truth, and I said, no, something happened. Something actually happened. There are facts, and they matter, and I'm sorry I'm doing the Bernie Sanders thing right now. There are facts, and we need to figure out what actually happened because it matters. And maybe you feel that tension in our society when we're talking through all of these very difficult issues in our day and age of, is it about living out your truth and my truth and tolerance and live and let live? Or are there standards? Are there things that we can latch onto that we all have in common? We're wildly swinging between unity and diversity and all of these different ideas. And, and it can be very, very difficult. Even one of the prevailing philosophies of the past 200 years, which we might call utilitarianism, which is what is the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people raises within itself a lot of questions. What do you mean by happiness? Is that really the goal? That the most people that can be happy, well, what about the minorities that aren't so happy? You see, so th these kinds of philosophies are swirling around and they, they really become problematic because we, we don't have um, a guiding compass. We don't have something that is kind of rooting us to what is true and therefore what is good and evil. And as Christians, we need to saturate ourselves in the vision of good and evil that flows from the story of God. 
Many of you will be familiar with the very first story in the Bible in Genesis with Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And God places them in this garden and he says, you can eat from anything here and and I've got a wonderful job for you to help steward creation and help it to flourish and I want you to know me. So here's this tree of life. Like to eat from the tree of life is to be in intimate relationship with me. But there's this one tree called a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't want you to eat from that. And, you know, we would often think, well, how cruel is that? But, you know, in order to love, you have to have the option to not love, right? Or else it's not love. Love always contains within it the option to opt out, to say no. And so God creates mankind. Do you realize we are the only creatures that can decide not to be who we are? Everything else in creation, everything else in the known universe, from planets and quasars and stars down to microscopic tardigrades, all of these creatures and, 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 and the created order, it cannot be anything other than what it is except for humanity. We get to choose out of being human, which means being human in the way that God has called us to be. And so there has to be this option. And it's very curious because the tree is not called the tree of evil or the tree of bad decisions. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we would often think, well, why would that be so wrong? Shouldn't we know good and evil? Isn't that the whole point? And I think what that story is really trying to say is your primary purpose in life, your primary pursuit can either be intimacy with God or it could be taking upon yourself the responsibility to discern what is good and what is evil. And guess what happens when you and I, when we're in charge and we get to decide what's good and evil? We very quickly stray from the course. But if intimacy with God is our primary pursuit in life, in understanding how we have been created to be human beings, then good and evil become categories that take care of themselves. But good and evil are not the pursuit of life. They're the fruit of intimacy with God and living into the identity to which he has called us. And so what happens then is that Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are opened and they become ashamed almost immediately. They begin to hide themselves. They begin to, to, to step away from God. And so God has to exile them from Eden. And we see so quickly this ripple effect in generation after generation find themselves moving farther and farther away from God. The first generation after Adam and Eve, we find lying, we find murder And it just continues to to boil out until God decides that he needs to bring the whole thing back in. And so that's when he comes to a man. He comes to a man called Abraham, a very old man who's a shepherd. And he says, I'm going to bless you. And out of you, your people are going to be a blessing to everybody else in drawing all humanity back into relationship with me. And so out of Abraham comes uh, the nation of Israel, who God chose to be his ambassadors to, 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 to speak of his goodness, to reveal what God is really like in order to bring all human beings back into relationship with him. And along that journey, God gives them a man called Moses. So, you know, Israel becomes a powerful nation. They're taken into exile in Egypt for 400 years. They're, they're slaves. Their identity is wiped out. And God raises up a man called Moses to, to step in and say, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to rescue you from slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to lead you into this promised land so that you can be who God's calling you to be as priests and rulers. But the people needed rehabilitated because they had forgotten who they were. And so God gives Moses the law. We call it the Torah. And it's something that's very difficult sometimes for us in Christianity to understand because we think, oh, it's Old Testament. We don't have to worry about it. 
it's not, you know, it's not a factor. We have freedom from that kind of stuff. But when we recognize what's really going on there, maybe we can appreciate what God's project has been this whole time. That God's law was intended to help us to learn what love looks like in practice. Remember, Israel, they had no identity They had no understanding of who God was. They didn't know who they were because when you're a slave, you're told your value is 100% determined by your performance. You know, your worth is how tall this wall gets today or how many bricks you've made. And guess what? Every day is exactly the same when you're in a slave mentality. But your identity is tied into your performance and how you behave and how successful you are, or strong you are, or smart you are, or pretty you are, whatever it might be. The slave mentality ties your identity to something that is conditional, and love is based on how well you're able to perform. Are we preaching yet? You see, all of a sudden, it's not just about slaves in Egypt, it's about us. And so, God's law was given to them to say, I'm going to remind, teach you who I am, I'm going to give you ways to work out in the very practical everydayness of life who you are and the worth that I have for you so that you can learn your purpose, your vocation for me to be priests, to be rulers. And so we find at the core of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, which kind of become, you know, the central figure um, for the Jewish law in the Old Testament. And one of them is this law about Sabbath, which kind of brings it back to the story of Jesus. And I want to read that in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. This is the commandment about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath is a really interesting command because at its core, the Sabbath is designed to remind Israel, and by extension us, you, your value is not in your work. In fact, you're going to take a whole day and you're not going to do any work and you're just going to rest so that you can be reminded that you're not a human doing, you're a human being. And God even ties that into himself, that God takes a rest. He works really hard for six days, creating the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he kind of let, he relaxes and he just enjoys his own creation. And so he's saying, I need you to take a break. I need you to pause. I need you to wake up on, on for, you know, for many of us would maybe be Saturday. I need you to wake up on Saturday morning and feel that itchy uneasiness of like, I need to do something today, but I need to also not do something today. And how many of you feel that when you've got free time and you just, you've, you need to fill it, you need to fill the calendar, you need to fill the schedule, you need to be busy because on some subversive level you've believed that your value is tied into what you do, how you achieve, how you show up for other people, whatever it might be. And before long, every day becomes exactly the same. And that's what we call Despair. Anxiety is the fear that tomorrow won't come. Despair is the fear that tomorrow is going to be just like today. We get up, we perform, we achieve, we accomplish, we crush it, we go to bed. We get up, we perform, we achieve, we crush it, we go to bed day after day after day. But God said, no, you're going to take a break. And, and, and if we're honest, it feels kind of right. 
Work hard for six days. Do the thing. And then take a day where you just rest into the goodness of creation to be revitalized. So when you come back to the next day, you're working out of an abundance of who you are. You're not working in order to earn your identity. But you see, in the time of Jesus, this really amazing, beautiful, therapeutic law that God had given Israel, the tradition had choked the life out of the law. There's 613 rules in the Old Testament. And when the, the rise of the rabbis, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament era, um, their interpretations were adding on to that even more. We find that it's a book called the Talmud, and it, and it carries within it all of the interpretations of how the laws were supposed to be played out. Because if we're honest, it's a, that's a very big law, even just within the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't work. Okay, natural question, what does it mean to work? And so the rabbis start picking apart, well, it means don't do this and don't do that, and that's okay. And like even in the modern era, some, um, some Orthodox Jews in Israel, like they tape the, the light switch on the inside of the refrigerator closed on Friday night. So when they open the fridge on Saturday, they technically didn't turn on a light, so they technically didn't do any work. You know, so you kind of, you, and, it's, and I'm not, I'm not, that's not an indictment necessarily of Judaism. It's just saying the way they're thinking is how do I remain faithful to what I'm called to do, which is very different from our, us Christians who in the name of freedom, just kind of do whatever we feel like and just name that the freedom of God and we just claim that as Holy Spirit. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, I'm not saying that we're supposed to go back to the Old Testament. It's more complex than that, but I think we have to appreciate there's a, we are meant to be shaped in a way that we think about what we do and it's repercussions for our intimacy with God and our identity in Jesus. So by the time of Jesus, the, the law had been dissected to the point where a lot of people were actually being enslaved by this thing that was meant to bring them true freedom in understanding who God had created for them to be. And that's where we find Jesus here doing two things on two different Sabbaths that kind of break the rules, so to speak. And the first one, that they're picking grain because they were hungry. And the second one, a miraculous healing of a man, and he's challenging them on this doing good and doing evil. In the parallel story in Mark, we find this interesting little line um, that, that Jesus Jesus speaks and he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what he's doing there is he's reiterating the whole point of the law is the law works for humanity, that the law helps us to become full, healthy, whole human beings. We don't work for the law. We don't just take our value being in performance and then just apply that to our religion. And it's like, okay, now we've got to behave in a, just a whole different set of rules than we did when we were all pagans. And I think that that's really, uh, that's the amazing transition that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the story he's, he's referring to in the Old Testament is that David, King David, he's on the run from Saul. He and his men, they're hiding out. They're kind of running around the countryside trying to be avoided. And he enters into the, the temple and he comes up to the priest, Ahimelech, and he's like, give me something to eat. And he's like, I don't have anything except for the, the consecrated bread, the showbread. Which, by the way, does anybody remember that cool hardcore band, Showbread? Anybody else listen to hardcore in the early 2000s? You and me, we're going to talk afterwards. They were great. I think they're from Brunswick, Georgia. They had like two singers and they were awesome. They were named after showbread singers, screamers. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I think one of them may be saying, I don't know. Uh, anyway, the showbread, the consecrated bread was like part of the ritual. And you, you, it's like a sacrifice of bread that symbolizes uh, the abundance that God has given us. And so Ahimelech says, all I've got is this consecrated bread. And so David's like, great, let's chow down. And he eats the bread that you're not supposed to eat. 
Okay, so even David, and we see this a lot of times in David's story, David understood the heart of God in a way that he wasn't so obsessed with like, oh, I can't do this because I have to behave and I have to you know, follow the rules or whatever. He knew what God really wanted. You know, even in Psalm 51, the, 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 the amazing psalm of heartbreak where David is kind of called out for being in, a, in, a, um, in an affair, there's this little line where he says, you would, I would make sacrifices, but I don't think that's what you want. Like a broken, contrite heart, that's your desire that I recognize. It's not about behaving, it's about this deeper reality within myself. You know, I went to, um, to art school in, at, over in Flagler College in St. Augustine, and, and one, you know, early on in, in getting an art degree, all you're doing is learning the rules, the principles of design, the elements of design, and you're doing all of these really repetitive acts that feel really basic, and we'd get super obsessed about this product that nobody cared about. I would show, I'd show my parents, like, look at this thing, I spent 15 hours cutting this stuff out of black paper, and they're like cool. We're not going to hang this on the wall or anything. But you became obsessive about learning the rules because later on when you got into those more advanced classes where you're doing painting or sculpture, I ended up doing uh, sound design, sound sculpture, you learn how to break the rules but wisely in order for the sake of the beauty of art. And I can go to, because of my training, I can kind of go to local galleries and I can tell you which artists have learned the rules and then learned how to break them creatively and which ones never learned the rules. And there are many of those people out there. <laughs> and, and, that's, and I think that's the key difference. Is like the rules, the, the order, the principles, the elements, they form you. So when it comes time, you're kind of more creative in knowing how to break and bend and move and shift. What we see in Jesus in this story was that he was completely saturated in the heart of God. He knew the real heart of the Father. And he was shaped by God's law. We know Jesus, as a Jew, was very obedient to the Torah. He didn't come along and just say, hey, guess what? Don't worry about the laws anymore. Just go out there and be free and just trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. No, Jesus was, he was a Jew. He followed the Torah. He had his rhythms. He had his rituals. But those things shaped him in his understanding of God and his understanding of what it really meant to be human in God's way. And so rhythms and rituals form us for the spontaneous moments to love others well. When you go through the whole story of Jesus, Jesus only broke the rules when it meant there was an opportunity to love somebody on the other side. I think that's a really good challenge for all of us. Jesus only broke the rules when it meant that he was in the sake of loving someone well. And the rules that he's breaking, by the way, were all of these rabbinic interpretations of what it meant to, to do Sabbath or to remain clean or whatever that might be. And he's kind of get, peeling back all the guff to say, this is what the thing has been about this whole time and you've missed it. So some of the exam, examples, like in this story, Jesus eat, you know, picking grain to eat um, healing this man with a withered hand. When Jesus is touching lepers or he's touching dead bodies and the rules said you can't, that makes you unclean if you touch people with skin diseases or you touch dead bodies. Jesus often was speaking to strange women, which you would never, ever, ever do in their society. If you don't know that woman, you don't talk to her. Um, Jesus would sit down and eat with sinners and tax collectors and pagans. And you, you don't do that because you're holy and they're, they're going to get their unholy cooties on you and they're going to mess up your thing. And he was always challenging the Pharisees on that one. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus saying to them, I tell you, you've heard it said like this, but I'm telling you it's actually like that. 
And a lot of times, if we're honest, Jesus is raising the stakes for us with the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know what? The Torah says don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you curse your brother in your mind, if you call him a fool, you've already murdered him. Well, dang. <laughs> That's very difficult all of a sudden because I thought I was doing pretty well. I hadn't murdered anybody and here I am. But what Jesus is doing is actually getting to the heart of the thing. God in the Old Testament is saying, I need you to be human beings. So the first thing, don't kill each other. Let's start there and see what happens. And then when, with the revelation, Jesus says, okay, we've got that down. I'm telling you now, the way in which you speak about other people can be seen as murder. And, when he, and, the, and Jesus' advocacy of nonviolence was very offensive in his day. Everybody was waiting for a violent revolution. We're going to take up swords. We're going to defeat Rome. God's going to reestablish our country. And Jesus comes along and says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Anybody can love their friends, but I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, he's getting to the heart of who God is so that he could welcome us into the heart of what it truly means to be a human being. One of my favorite stories is that Jesus finds out his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded uh, by the king at the time, the king over Judea. And it says, there's not a whole lot of emotional context, but we can, kind of, we can kind of fill in the gaps. It says, Jesus sought to go off by himself into a quiet place to mourn the loss of his cousin. But it says there was this huge crowd follows him out into the wilderness and they, they want him. They, they want to receive his teaching. They want to see miracles. They want to encounter Jesus. And you know, in that moment, Jesus had every right to do what you and I would do and say, hey, not today. I'm sorry, I need some personal time. I need some space. Come back tomorrow once I've recharged and then we'll do the thing. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, heartbroken. Just think about your cousin. Think about your brother or sister. If they were beheaded today, do you think you'd really have it in you to engage with a crowd? But what does he do? He turns around and performs a miracle and he feeds 5,000 people out of some loaves and some fishes. But he empowers his disciples. He says, you, you, guys, you guys go do this. You can almost feel Jesus is like, this is more important. This is more important. And he sacrifices his own rights to his, his own personal space to show up and love other people well because he knows after this, this moment, he's going to be able to go off and to mourn his cousin. You see, everything Jesus did was to fulfill the greatest commandment. At one point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to them and say, what's the greatest commandment in all the Torah? What's the? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this commandment hangs all the law and the prophets. And what he's saying is, this is, about, this is what it's about. And everything else has just been trying to get us to that. And you can take every single law and you can hang it on those things. Is it helping us to love God? Is it helping us to love others? Is it helping us to love self? And then comes the interesting questions. What is love? If we're following God to discover what is good and evil, what is truth, then what do we do with that? What we do with good and evil, what we do with truth, that is what's called love. And that means that we have to follow Jesus in order to discover what love means in terms of how God has designed for it to be. And that means we begin to walk away from these very sad and, and lacking philosophies of the modern era that are trying to tell us what love is, whether it's fighting for truth and unity by trying to get everybody to obey the rules in moral rigidity, whether it's just a 
tolerance, which I think is a rather pathetic form of love, if we're honest. It's like, well, you just live your truth, and I live my truth, and I love you, see ya. That's pathetic. It doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't do anything for other people. But we follow Jesus. We say, I need to know what love looks like. And I'm pretty sure he's the guy that knows. And so we follow Jesus into this new adventure of learning what does it mean to be a human being in the way that God has designed us and how then are we formed in such a way that we can show up for other people and love other people the way that God wants us to love. And when we follow Jesus, we begin to open our eyes for these moments to do good in kingdom ways, even if it's not in the script, especially if it's not in the script. Several years ago, I went... I have a, my friend Chad, he's nuts. He loves just go out on the street and just pray and prophesy and heal people. So I went with him one time because we should all do that at some point. And we just went out and started engaging with people. We met this, this homeless man, Arthur, started talking to him. I had a, what's called a word of knowledge, which is when God reveals something to you about somebody that you, didn't, you wouldn't have normally known. And I was like, something's wrong with your shoulder. And he said, yeah, I'm a day laborer. I've been working on all this, but I kind of like, uh, his rotator cuff was like out of alignment or whatever. So we prayed for him and that, and it was healed. And they were like, there's also something wrong with your stomach, isn't there? And he says, yeah, yeah, I've had this like just, you know, just really bad knot in my stomach. We prayed for him and that was healed. And then the Lord said to me, his, there's something about his, his daughter and he needs to call his daughter. It's like, okay. And this is not me. This is not my normal. I don't walk around doing this all the time. And I said, uh, Arthur, the Lord wants you to know he wants you to call your daughter. And he just got wide-eyed. He said, I haven't talked to my daughter in over a year. And I just got a cell phone this morning, the first cell phone I've had in a year. I was like, all right, well, now you know what you need to do with it because I think the Lord gave you the cell phone. And it's those kinds of spont- terrifying, spontaneous moments that go beyond the rules of behavior of like being a Christian is doing this and doing that and blah, blah, blah. And you just keep your eyes to the ground and we do this navel gazing thing. But to follow those rhythms and those rituals of being a Christian forms us. So when we have those spontaneous moments of engaging with people that we knew- would not normally see, because our culture is obsessed with spontaneity, we know how to love them in the way that God does, and all of a sudden, miracles actually start to happen. Supernatural things begin to happen because we've been formed by the love of God. And I hope this elevates the conversation of like, oh, you need to go to church on Sunday mornings. Oh, you should probably pray every once in a while, read your Bible. You know, wouldn't that be a good idea? <laughs> Boring. And I hope it elevates that whole conversation to be like, oh my goodness, we are being trained, we are being shaped, we are being formed by how we invest in our rituals and and rhythms as human beings so when the time comes, we know what to do. And so what are your daily and weekly rhythms that help prepare you to love well? When you came in today, uh, there's a little clipboard on your uh, chair. I want you to pull that out. This is a very simple exercise. I've done this with several people. But it's basically just about getting your calendar in order. It's called 21 squares. So you break down each day into morning, afternoon, and evening. And you just begin prioritizing. What are the most important things that I need to add into or that I'm currently doing in my rhythms to help me to find that space, okay? And again, sometimes it feels very unsexy, but I tell you what, the calendar is king in our modern era of busyness. God gives us the Holy Spirit and then he gives us the calendar app. Like that's the second, 
greatest gift that he's given us because it's an opportunity for us to reclaim time from the insanity of the modern era. And so on that, there's just a, there's a, a couple different things. Number one, where's your place for communal worship? Because guess what? The thing we do here on Sunday morning is irreplaceable, okay? I've told you before and I stand by this. You cannot be a Christian alone. You just can't do it. It's not designed to do that. You can't be a Christian and just exit the church, the capital C church, the people of God. We need those rhythms where we're coming together for worship together with the body of Christ. Where are those moments of personal quiet time with the Lord, of sitting in stillness and solitude, that quiet consent to say, God, here I am and I'm with you? When is your Sabbath? that time of just resting in Jesus. What do you need to do with that Sabbath? Do you need to turn off your phone? Do you need to not drive anywhere? Like, what are the things that you need to do in order to take that time seriously? Where's your time of of deep-end fellowship with fellow believers? The things that we can't necessarily do here on a Sunday where you're engaging with the Word, where you're laying hands, where you're praying for one another, maybe where you're going out on the streets and you're preaching the good news and you're seeing if God's going to show up and, and, and work through you miraculously. Where are those times? How do you start your day? Is there a moment of prayer right there in the morning? You're saying, God, whatever you want to see happen today, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Open my eyes. So we're going to take five minutes and I want you to prayerfully consider what are you currently doing and what do you need to instill? And as we're here on the brink of the Lent season, it's a perfect time to begin some of those new rhythms and rituals that might shape you to be a bit more like Jesus. So I'm going to pray and I'm just going to give you a couple minutes on that. Um, Father, I thank you for this. We all desire to live um, a life of adventure. And can there be any greater adventure than following you, than being shaped by you to go places we never thought we'd go, to see people in ways we never thought that we'd see them, but to engage with you in ways that we maybe never thought possible. So Holy Spirit, um, I invite you right now, will you reveal to us honestly and truthfully, what are the things that we're currently participating in that would help to shape us? Um, And what are the things that maybe we need to take up in this next season, over the next 40 days, um, so that we might be more ready to meet you than ever before? We welcome you into this space, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's take five minutes and just work through that with the Lord.
give you about one more minute. I want to invite you guys to stand with me. <clears throat> Obviously, you need more than five minutes to work through this, but I just wanted to kind of get, the, get your mind, get your heart moving in that general direction. Because I truly believe this is one of the most powerful gifts that God has given us in establishing rhythms in our life, not just for the sake of following the rules or being a good Christian boy or being a good Christian girl, but actually learning how to live more like Jesus so when the time comes for us to love well, we know what we're there to do. I found this fascinating study this week that said um, the United States is number one when it comes to doing heroic things, um, whether it's pulling people out of burning buildings or rushing into the scene of a car accident. We're number one. Cool. Um, but we're pretty far down the list when it comes to normal everyday acts of goodness and kindness. And I think it says something that our society, we love to be heroes, but we're a little bit harder on the being servants because it's not maybe sexy. And I think that's where this kind of thing comes in. It's training us in the normal, supposedly boring, repetitive, everyday, every week rhythms. And then all of a sudden, when that moment comes, when you see that person on the street, when you notice the person on the other side of the restaurant and you can tell something's wrong and you feel that nudge of the spirit that's like, this is the moment, this is what I shaped you for. You're ready to step in and to love that person with the love of God. Anyone can follow rules and anybody can rebel against them. Only a wise and mature person lets themselves be formed to live out the highest rule of love. And what is love? We look to him. Amen. We look to Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life that he was sent to save the world, not to condemn it, because we already stood condemned. We'd already told ourselves these lies about who we're supposed to be and how the thing's supposed to work that only brought death. But it was through the sacrificial, other-focused love of Jesus, especially Jesus on the cross, we say, that is the highest vision of love that I can have. And if I can learn to live like that, then maybe I'm living into what it means to truly be a human being. So we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to take part in this ancient symbol where we're, we're making that thing true again in us. 
that as we take into ourselves the body and the blood of Jesus represented here through these crackers and this juice, it's us symbolically saying, Jesus, we want to be formed more like you. We want to follow you to figure out what love actually looks like. We want to be shaped by our rhythms, by our sacred symbols, by our rituals, and that somehow in that you're doing something within us in your spirit so that when we go back out, we carry with us that cross-shaped love that cross-shaped vision for saving the whole world. And so, Father, be with us as we come to your table. Teach us how to walk in your ways, to live according to your truth, that day by day we leave behind the small and pithy philosophies of the world around us that teach us what good and evil is supposed to be or what love is supposed to look like. And we say, I want to follow Jesus with everything that I am. I want him to shape and form me. I want to see what good and evil is through the eyes of God. I want to love in the way that God has fashioned me to love. That through each one of us, miracles would happen. People are set free. People come into an encounter with the real and living God in a way that they never have before. And that we come back here week after week celebrating how you are faithful. You have revealed yourself to us. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.